0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the May 16th edition of the War Comp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with the Floyd Skirin Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. So let's get started with our litigation report. A WCAB panel concluded that a correctional officer's serious and willful misconduct award calculation must include his enhanced industrial disability leave benefits. In this case, Michael Ayala sustained a 2002 injury while employed as a correctional officer by the Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, Lancaster State Prison, as a result of an attack on prison staff by the inmates. Stipulations with request for an award agreed that the injury caused him 85% permanent disability. Ayala also filed a petition for increased benefits for serious and woeful misconduct by the employer And after a trial, the work comp judge denied the increased benefits. But back in 2020, reconsideration was granted and the appeals board found that he did sustain an injury as a result of serious and willful misconduct and awarded a 50% increase in compensation. So the case proceeded to trial to calculate the 50% increase in benefits. One of the issues was to determine if the computation of the s and award applies to the Enhanced Industrial Disability Leave. He was paid Enhanced IDL at the rate of his full salary for 845 days, valued at $155,000, 50% of which would be $77,500 in increased benefits. The work comp judge found that the appeals board lacks jurisdiction to award industrial disability leave benefits. However, reconsideration was again granted and the WCB panel issued another new decision finding that Ayala was entitled to the 50% increase to be calculated based on the enhanced IDL he received. This was in the WCB panel decision of Ayala v. Department of Corrections. The panel stated that there is no dispute that the appeals board does not have jurisdiction to award IDL enhanced or otherwise. However, the appeals board unquestionably has jurisdiction to issue and calculate the serious and willful award entitlement under Labor Code 4553. The California Government Code provides for state employees to receive IDL that is full pay, less withholding for taxes and certain deductions for 52 weeks when they are temporarily disabled due to an industrial injury. And then certain employees receive enhanced IDL under the Code. The s and statute provides that the amount of compensation otherwise recoverable shall be increased by one-half." Mr. Ayala argued that the words in this statute, otherwise recoverable, extends to compensation beyond what is obtained in the definition of compensation in the Labor Code. And the WCAB panel essentially agreed with his arguments, and it went on to discuss the purpose of the SNW statute since the fundamental rule of statutory construction is that a court should ascertain the intent of the legislature so as to effectuate the purpose of the law. The panel also cited prior published Court of Appeal decisions that held that an award for increased compensation due to the serious and willful misconduct of an employer must be calculated with reference to every benefit or payment conferred by the labor code applying the interpretation principles in this case the panel concluded that the purpose of an S&W award is to more fully compensate the employee for an injury caused by the employer's serious and willful misconduct it concluded by saying this purpose is best served by interpreting compensation otherwise recoverable as including applicant's enhanced IDL payments. And another WCEB panel held that the QME rules allowed an injured worker to select a QME he previously struck from a one-year-old panel. In this case, Gus Kowal claimed two injuries while employed as a roofer by the County of Los Angeles, which the employer denied. So Koal requested and obtained a QME panel in orthopedic surgery for the cumulative trauma claim. The employer sent Koal a letter objecting to the panel and also striking one of the physicians from the panel as a precaution. Koal then sent notice that he struck Dr. Hanani from the panel then about one year later, Kowal scheduled an appointment with Dr. Hanani, the same doctor he struck from the panel, to conduct the QME evaluation. The matter proceeded to trial on the issue of this evaluation, and the work comp judge concluded that Mr. Kowal could not be evaluated by a QME he had previously rejected. But reconsideration was granted in the WC... AB panel allowed him to proceed with the QME evaluation in the case of Kowal versus the County of Los Angeles. The employer made a timely strike from the panel. However, Kowal's letter striking Dr. Hanani from the panel was untimely, even accounting for additional time for mailing. Since it was untimely, it was invalid. Thus, The remaining doctors on the panel remained viable choices as a QME. QME Rule 31.3 provides the procedures for parties to schedule an appointment with the QME. A represented worker has the right for the first 10 days. After that, either party may schedule an appointment with the QME. And the clock stops running and either party has an indefinite time to schedule the appointment. The WCAB noted that this is a unique set of facts since applicants scheduled an appointment with a physician he attempted to strike for the panel. But since his strike was untimely and invalid, both parties had the right to schedule an appointment with the remaining physicians on the panel, and the injured worker chose to exercise that right. Therefore, the WCB panel rescinded the finding in order and issued a new decision, finding that Kowal was permitted to schedule an examination with the doctor he had untimely struck. A Stanford professor testifies against Walgreens in a San Francisco opioid trial which occurred last week. San Francisco's opioid lawsuit against Walgreens and a number of pharmaceutical companies commenced its trial late last month. The suit was filed in 2018 against a panoply of defendants, but many of them have since been dismissed thanks to settlements. But some parties remain, including Walgreens, activists, Teva Pharmaceuticals, and Endo Pharmaceuticals. The trial marks another instance of a governmental entity accusing drug makers and sellers of creating a public nuisance, an attempt to collect damages over an addiction epidemic that persists to this day. This past November, that theory failed when an Orange County Superior Court judge ruled in favor of four pharmaceutical companies, including Teva, in a suit brought by four cities and counties. That same month, the Oklahoma Supreme Court overturned a $465 million ruling against Johnson & Johnson on the same public nuisance theory. And a jury trial in Florida ended mid-trial when Walgreens agreed to settle claims brought by the Sunshine State and its cities and counties for $683 million. Now, according to the report by Courthouse News, The San Francisco opioid trial picked up Monday, May 9, after a one-week hiatus, with the expert testimony of Dr. Anna Lemke, who said Walgreens and three other defendants in the civil suit helped spread misinformation that led to the opioid crisis that took nearly half a million lives. Dr. Lemke is a Stanford University professor who teaches, conducts research, and treats patients and the author of two books, Drug Dealer MD and Dopamine Nation. She testified that the defendants in this case used misinformation to target doctors and that Walgreens actively collaborated with Purdue to educate their pharmacists on the use of treating pain with opioids. Lemke faced cross-examination by lawyers for Tiva and Allerjan who attempted to get her to admit their clients played minor roles in the opioid crisis and that any misinformation they disseminated, for example, that addiction rarely results from opioid prescriptions, was intended for internal use only. But Dr. Lemke pushed back, saying many of the internal documents were used to train sales representatives who visited doctors to convince them of both the safety of opioids and the necessity of treating pain seriously. Dr. Lemke said that this massive misinformation campaign stripped doctors of the true appreciation of the danger of opioid use. So this case will continue to proceed over the next several weeks if not months as the industry will anxiously await the result which will either continue the trend of drug maker wins on the public nuisance theory or if there will now be a victory for government plaintiffs including San Francisco. And now our crime report. David Wayne Jenkins was sentenced to 364 days in custody after his plea of no contest to charges related to his failure to pay farm workers at the hemp farm he was operating in Half Moon Bay. Jenkins also pled no contest to charges he failed to transmit taxes withheld from his employees' wages and failed to maintain a workers' compensation insurance policy. He started a hemp farm in Half Moon Bay back in 2019 and employed between 30 and 40 employees throughout 2020 under the business name Castle Management. At first, he paid his employees every two weeks and withheld taxes from their paychecks. But despite being warned by his payroll service, he never registered Castle Management with the EDD nor were any of the withheld taxes paid to them. He then stopped paying his employees altogether after he ran into financial difficulties. He provided them with a variety of excuses for why they had not been paid, so they continued working without pay until investigators of the Labor Commissioner's Office issued a stop-work order. After an extensive investigation, Jenkins was charged in a felony complaint for theft of labor, tax evasion, and failure to maintain workers' comp insurance. As part of an April plea agreement, Jenkins pled no contest to two counts of grand theft of labor as felonies, one count of failure to transmit taxes, also a felony, and one count of failure to maintain workers' compensation insurance, a misdemeanor. The remaining counts were dismissed with a waiver allowing the court to consider them for purposes of sentencing and restitution. He was ordered to serve 364 days in custody concurrent with a two-year prison term he will be serving in an unrelated case. He was also ordered to pay restitution of more than $55,000 to Care West Insurance for unpaid workers' comp premiums and also restitution to his other victims. And in regulatory news, the National Council on Compensation Insurance released its performance metrics for the U.S. workers' compensation system for 2021. Private carrier plus state fund net written premium increased about 1% to $43 billion in 2021 private carriers again posted a profitable combined ratio of 87% for calendar year 2021. It is the fifth consecutive year with a combined ratio below 90% for the workers' compensation insurance market and the eighth consecutive year of underwriting profitability. The president and CEO of NCCI said that, The strength and resilience of the workers' compensation system is a point of pride for all stakeholders. And the NCCI chief actuary added that we have a remarkably strong and healthy system right now. Additional key insights in NCCI's State of the Line report include Lost time claim frequency data suggests the long-term decline has continued. The number of COVID-19 claims declined in 2021 relative to the prior years. Workers' compensation reserves grew to $16 billion redundant as of year-end 2021. And between 2020 and 2021, countrywide private carrier direct written premium increased 1.9% as state funds saw a larger increase in premium compared with private carriers. Cal-OSHA approved and updated COVID-19 Temporary Standards, and they posted fact sheets and updated its FAQs on COVID-19 Prevention Emergency Temporary Standards to reflect revisions adopted by the Occupational Safety and Health Standards Board on April 21. Their revisions incorporate updated guidance from the California Department of Public Health and make the emergency standards more flexible if changes are made to public health guidance in the future. The updated ETS standards are in effect now through December 31, 2022, and they apply to most workers in California not covered by the aerosol transmissible diseases standard. The facts sheets posted online include what employers need to know about the April 21, 2022 standards, COVID-19 isolation and quarantine, and revisions to the COVID-19 prevention emergency temporary standards updated May 7, 2022 FAQs. Employers who have questions or need assistance with workplace safety and health programs including assistance with developing a COVID-19 prevention program at their work site, can call Cal OSHA's Consultation Services branch. And in legislative news, each year the California Chamber of Commerce releases releases a list of job killer bills to identify legislation that it says will decimate economic and job growth in California. The Cal Chamber tracks the bills throughout the rest of the legislative session and works to educate legislators about the serious consequences these bills might have on the state. The good news for California employers is that the proposal for a 32-hour work week in California seems to no longer be a problem. The Chamber said that AB 2932 would significantly increase labor costs by imposing an overtime pay requirement after 32 hours of work and other requirements that are impossible to comply with, exposing employers to litigation under the Private Attorney General Act. The bill is now in the Assembly Labor and Employment Committee, and it failed the deadline to move from the Policy Committee to Fiscal Committee by April 29, 2022. One bill remains on the workers' compensation section of the job killer list. Cal Chambers says that SB 213 significantly increases workers' compensation costs for public and private hospitals by presuming certain diseases and injuries are caused by the workplace, and it establishes an extremely concerning precedent for expanding presumptions into the private sector. This is a 2021 carryover bill. And there are several employment law-related proposals that remain on the job killer list. AB 2095, if passed, places new administrative burdens on employers by requiring annual reporting of wage and hour data and employee benefits on an employer's entire United States workforce. It says that this will unfairly criticize employers for lawful conduct by publishing VAT data on the Labor and Workforce Development Agency's website and using such data to rank employers and deny them state opportunities and will subject employers to frivolous litigation and settlement demands. Also proposed AB 2182 imposes new burdens on employers, to accommodate any employee with family responsibilities, which will essentially include a new, uncapped, protected leave for employees to request time off. And proposed AB 2188, they say, risks workplace safety by promoting marijuana use to a protected class under California's discrimination law on par with national origin or religion. Their proposal also effectively prohibits pre-employment drug testing, harming an employer's ability to keep their workplace safe and drug free. They also discuss SB 1044, which would allow employers to leave work or refuse to show up for work if the employee subjectively feels unsafe, regardless of existing health and safety standards or whether the employer has provided health and safety protections. And it subjects employers to costly Private Attorney General Act lawsuits if they dispute the employee's decision or need to have another employee take over any job duties. To follow up on the status of these and other proposed laws affecting employers in California, please search for the California Chamber of Commerce Job Killer List. And in medical news, a new study published in the journal Science Translational Medicine claims that the treatments often used to soothe pain in the lower back might cause it to last longer. According to the study authors, chronic pain inflicts huge societal costs in terms of management, loss of work productivity, and effects on quality of life. And chronic low back pain is the most frequently reported chronic pain condition, and ranks the highest of all chronic conditions in terms of years lived with disability, which is which its prevalence and burden increase with age. Current treatments for low back pain often target the immune system and include non strodial anti inflammatory drugs, that's NSAIDs, such as acetaminophrine and corticosteroids, although all of these drug classes are minimally effective at best. The transition from acute to chronic pain is critically important, but not well understood, and scientists understand very little of the molecular mechanisms underlying the acute to chronic pain transition. Therefore, these researchers in the study decided to investigate the pathophysiological mechanisms underlying the transition from acute to chronic low back pain. Clinical data showed that the use of anti-inflammatory drugs was associated with increased risk of persistent pain, suggesting that anti-inflammatory treatments might have negative effects on pain duration. Thus, despite analgesic efficiency at early time points, the management of acute inflammation may be counterproductive for long-term outcomes of low back pain sufferers. Researchers then replicated their findings using a prospective cohort of similar design. The authors say that these conclusions may have a substantial impact on medical treatment of the most common presenting complaints to healthcare care professionals specifically the data suggests that the long-term effects of anti-inflammatory drugs should be further investigated in the treatment of acute low back pain and likely other pain conditions the influenza vaccine is protective against the influenza virus reducing the number of cases and deaths that occur with this seasonal pathogen. Flu shots are a high priority for older adults and healthcare workers at a greater risk of infection and complications of the flu. And earlier research suggested a link between COVID infection and adverse outcomes and prior influenza vaccination. Thus, a current study, which appears on the MedRxiv preprint server, was conducted among healthcare workers at Hamad Medical Corporation, the principal provider of public healthcare services in Qatar, and the nationally designated entity for COVID-19-related healthcare needs. It included over 30,000 healthcare workers vaccinated against influenza in 2020, when the annual flu shots were usually given. Significantly, this data was before the rollout of COVID-19 vaccines. All participants received the Abbott drugs uh, quadrivalent Influvac Tetra vaccine. The results showed that the flu shots reduced the risk of COVID over the next two weeks by 30% and reduced the risk of severe or fatal COVID by 90 percent of nearly 130 individuals who tested positive for covid by the pcr test after taking the flu shot only one developed severe covid-19 requiring hospitalization and none progressed to critical or fatal disease in contrast among nearly 400 unvaccinated patients who tested positive, there were 17 severe and two critical cases, although no deaths occurred. The evidence supports the reported effectiveness of the influence of vaccine against infection with COVID-19, although there were limitations in the methodology of this study. And the protection mechanism is as yet unexplained. The Food and Drug Administration is reporting shortages of GE Healthcare's intravenous contrast media products for computed tomography imaging. In an April April 19 letter to customers, GE Healthcare said it was rationing orders for its CT scan contrast products after a COVID-19 lockdown temporarily shut down its production facility in Shanghai, China. The weeks-long outage at the Shanghai production plant is not only affecting U.S. hospitals, but also other world regions to a lesser extent. Shanghai authorities have tightened a citywide lockdown imposed more than a month ago on the commercial hub with a population of 25 million people, a move that could extend curbs on movement through the month. According to a report by Reuters, Some of the largest U.S. hospitals said they are facing critical shortage of CT contrast media products. The Cleveland Clinic in Ohio, Kaiser Permanente in Oakland, Rochester, Minnesota-based Mayo Clinic, and Providence in Renton, Washington, all said in statements they were taking steps to secure as much supply as possible and to conserve use. GE's production in Ireland would only cover about 20% of normal supply to all customers through the end of June, since most of the U.S. supply comes from Shanghai. In addition to increasing output at its Cork, Ireland facility to help resolve U.S. shortages, GE has flown product from Cork and Shanghai to the United States rather than shipped by sea to accelerate delivery. It did not give details on the increase in capacity or what extra costs it had incurred due to these measures. GE Healthcare has four contrast media manufacturing facilities, including the one in Shanghai. A spokesman for Bayer, which competes with GE Healthcare in contrast media, said it is not facing a similar situation, and it was taking several measures to help manage the market situation with incremental volumes to support customers and minimize patient impact. The American Hospital Association's Vice President for Quality and Patient Safety said it was aware of the global shortage of IV contrast fluid due to production shutdowns in China, China and has raised the issue with the administration. And that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish our daily news, podcast and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarron, and Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.